tuned in to Soul Searching, the Church of the Nativity podcast, where we explore the Christian faith through scripture, reason, and tradition. I'm Father Jason Emerson, and we're really glad you tuned in today. Today, we're going to begin a three-part series on the Epistle of James. Um, and why are we doing this? Why are we talking about this particular epistle from the New Testament? Well, right now on Sunday mornings in Episcopal churches, we are reading James. And for those of you who might not be Episcopalians or go to a liturgical church that uses the lectionary, we have four scripture readings every Sunday. We have an Old Testament reading, a Psalm, a New Testament reading, and then a gospel reading. And those are set out and laid out in, what, in a lectionary. Uh, different traditions have their own, and several of us use what's called the Revised Common Lectionary, which is used in a lot of Episcopal, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, Roman Catholic churches altogether. Uh, so we're all hearing and reflecting on the same scriptures every Sunday. And the ones that are assigned, the epistle readings that are assigned for the month of September in what's called year B, it's a three-year cycle, A, B, and C. The ones that are assigned for September are from the epistle uh, of James or the epistle of St. James, if you would like. So I think it's good for us to spend some time reflecting on this book uh, of Scripture a little bit deeper than what we get to do uh, just hearing it in worship on Sunday mornings. I am basing a lot of the information that I'm going to be providing in discussion on Luke Timothy's job, uh, on Luke Timothy Johnson's book, The Letter of James. It's a commentary from the Anchor Bible series, and I'll put a link to where you can find that book online uh, in the show notes as well. Today, we're going to kind of talk about the book as a whole, and we're going to talk about the text and the language and the style of the book. Next week, we'll get into the structure of the book and the genre of it. And the last week, we'll talk about the book's literary relationships to other things written about the same time. So let's talk about the text. What we call the New Testament was written in Greek in the first century of what we call the Common Era. The Common Era is what we're living in right now. And the New Testament uh, is several different books that have been combined together into a library. And that is half of what we call the Christian Bible. The First Testament or Old Testament is, comes, are the Hebrew Scriptures. And they're shared between us and um, our Jewish brothers and sisters. In fact, it was their primary text. We are second readers of that text. The New Testament can also be called the, the Christian scriptures, if you would like. And they kind of were all written in the first century. However, the earliest manuscripts or copies of them that we have uh, are not from the first century. And the earliest manuscripts and copies of the epistles of James that we have are from the third century, the 200s. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Um so, while well, that's important in just a moment, it is uh, within these manuscripts that we have, we have some complete manuscripts and we have some like partial, 
pieces of it on different papyrus and this, that, and the other. What scholars have noted is that it's a relatively uh, stable text. That is, from manuscript to manuscript to fragment, they don't see a lot of variations in the text. The words seem to be the same. So it's a very stable text. Also, this epistle was quoted by early Christian writers between the first century and the third century. Um, So we know it was in existence very early on and was used within the broader Christian church very early on. Now, you might be thinking, well, if it was written in the first century, but our manuscripts aren't from the third century, that's a couple of hundred years between, how do we know this is a legitimate text or that the text that we have is legitimate um, and isn't, you know, been changed over that time period? Well, to put in comparison, we pretty much think that Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad were written like 500 years before the Common Era, with BCE. And the earliest manuscripts we have from it are also from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. So that's an even longer period. And we're pretty sure that the manuscripts that we have reflect the original texts of that. And this is a shorter time period, a shorter window. Plus, as I said, within the manuscript tradition, it's a very stable text. And the early Christian writers between the 1st and 3rd century quote it. So it is very much a legitimate foundational document for Christianity. This is one of the reasons that we can take this text to be authoritative. Like I said, it's written in Greek, like the rest of the New Testament. And the style and the sophistication of the Greek in the epistle of James is on par with that of the epistle to the Hebrews. The Greek, the sophistication of the Greek in the different books of the New Testament varies from book to book. Um, In fact, some professor I had somewhere along the way, I don't quite remember which specific one, but I remember them telling me that the Greek of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the books that tell the story of Jesus, that it is about, the Greek is about as sophisticated as the English you would find in a travel pamphlet in a rest station on the interstate, in a welcome center on the interstate. It's not really sophisticated Greek. The Epistle of Hebrews is probably the most sophisticated Greek in the New Testament. And James is kind of on par with that. It's, it's riding along. It's in the same realm as the Epistle of Hebrews, if not quite um, that sophisticated. It's close. Now, the Greek and the text of St. James, uh, St. James's epistle relates to something called the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was done a century and a half, a century, century and a half, two centuries before the time of Jesus. The reason it's called the Septuagint is that means 70. Um, And you'll see it referenced as LXX, which is the Roman numeral for 70. And the legend behind it is that this was produced in Alexandria and 70 Jewish um, rabbis, translated 
um, the entire Hebrew scriptures into Greek in 70 days. Um, that's the legend. It probably did not exactly happen to that way, but that is the technical term for that Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And it's obvious that it was familiar to the, the New Testament writers because when they quote the Hebrew scriptures, they quote the Greek text. They quote the Septuagint. And it makes a difference. A famous bit from the epistle of James is, be ye doers of the word, not just hearers. And also doers of the law and not just hearers. Those are common emphatic statements within the epistle of James. But they would mean something different to someone who had no understanding of the Septuagint versus someone who did. Um, it, uh, you know, These texts come from the Hellenistic world, what had been the... Um, the empire of Alexander from Greece and had gone on a project of Hellenizing all these areas that had been conquer conquered. And now in the first century was under Roman rule, which is also very Hellenized in its way of thinking. And to a Greek speaker who had no knowledge of the Septuagint, a doer of the word would mean a poet and a doer of the law would mean a legislator. However, someone who is a Greek speaker, like a Jewish person in the first century who is a Greek speaker with knowledge of the Septuagint would hear doer of the word and think following Torah and doer of the law and also think following Torah. The Torah being the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, which is also Torah means law. It's also referred to as the law of Moses. And so that's, you know, those understandings of language and the people who use them, use those languages, um, influences how we read the text and understand it. The style of it is very short, staccato, and imperative. It's only four chapters, and the author does not beat around the bush. It doesn't say, well, I think in these situations you might want to consider doing something kind of like blah, blah, blah. No. He says, do this, do this, do this. It's imperative. Um, it is rhetoric. Rhetoric uh, in the Hellenized world, Greek spe speakers, was a matter of argumentation. Different techniques were used to make a point to persuade people to something. And being, using the imperative voice was one of those techniques. Also, there's a lot of alliteration, which is another a technique of rhetoric because alliteration helps things stick in people's heads and helps them remember it. So it's often used in rhetoric and when people are trying to speak formally. When I preach, I often use alliter alliteration deliberately because it sticks in people's heads and helps persuade them. Um, we think this is, is kind of one formal way of thinking about it, the way that it is constructed and certainly in its language style. We can think of it as a diatribe. Now, we think of a diatribe as somebody very rudely going off about something, especially if we're seeing a diatribe in Facebook, hence the tag um, TLDR. If you've seen that, it means too long, didn't read. It probably means that you went on a diatribe and 
your Facebook post and people are like, dude, this is just way too long. I'm not reading this. It's usually, you know, has the connotation of being polemical and antagonistic and negative. However, as a formal uh, construct in rhetoric, a diatribe just means a prolonged discourse. And so this is, you know, four chapters, not the longest book in the Bible, but it is a prolonged one as a, a prolonged statement that is trying to persuade people to something. It is a prolonged discourse. Also, we should note that it uses the second person plural of you very often and rarely, if ever, uses the first, the uh, second person singular. Rarely, if ever, uses the second person singular. So when we, when we in English, modern English, read the word you, we might instinctively think that it's just talking to one person, that the author is writing to one person, but the author is not. The author is writing to a community. It's writing to a group of people. It's you, plural. Those of us down south, we get this. We have you and y'all. Y'all is a very inclusive term. It includes a bunch of people. It is gender inclusive. It is inclusive of sexual orientation, race, uh, you know, all, it just means a bunch of people, it means a community. So when we see the word you in modern English in the epistle of James, we should think y'all, or even better, all y'all. It means a community. He's talking to a group of people. Um, several times, there'll be passages that offer short questions and then immediate answers. This is another rhetorical technique. Um, it, it enables you plant the question in the person's head and then you offer your answer to that question and it helps the person remember. Instead of just saying, today I'm going to talk about Toyotas. You might say, well, you might be thinking, what's so great about Toyotas? Well, I'm going to tell you, here it is, right? It's a rhetorical technique that helps people remember things and helps persuade them as well. Also, there's several passages that use rhetorical questions. That is, it offers a question, but doesn't give an answer. doesn't expect an answer. Um, it's just put in there. And all these things come together. So why does this matter to us? It lets us know that this was a crafted piece of writing. That this letter, the words there are intentional because we can see all these different aspects from the style and the rhetorical techniques and its relationship to the Septuagint. We can know that this was a crafted piece of discourse, a crafted piece of writing meant to do a purpose. And so when we go to try to interpret it, we try to understand it, we know this there with intention and that informs our uh, interpretation. So that's why that matters. So I think that's where we'll wrap up today. We'll pick up again next week. And um, if you came to us through iTunes, we really would appreciate a five-star rating and review. Um, if you came to us from Spotify as well, thank you so much. If you'd like to support all of God's ministry through the Church of the Nativity, go to www.nativityfto.org slash donate. We greatly appreciate any help you can offer on that front. And I'm Father Jason Emerson. I'm coming to you from the Church of the Nativity in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. And I want you to remember... God loves you more than you could possibly imagine.